Welcome to Right Now Workshop Podcast, where you can write a book and change the world. I'm your host, Kitty Buholtz, and this is episode 71, Chicklet is Not Dead, an interview with Kristen Billerbeck, coming to you on Thursday, May 31st, 2018. You are about to listen to a great interview. And writer friend, let me tell you, you are going to be inspired and motivated and feeling like you've just got a shot of adrenaline after listening to this interview with Kristen. There is just something about her new book and the way that we talk through all of her writing process and what she writes and why she writes it and how she does it. And I'm telling you, I am, you know, if you've been listening for a while, I've been really on kind of a search for who am I again, <laughs> trying to figure things out after, oh, these many moves. And, uh, oh boy, do I feel better. Do you know why? I have spent today reading The Theory of Happily Ever After, Kristen's new book. And Maggie, the main character, is a neuroscientist, already lover. I, I love neuroscientists. Uh, neuroscience and any sort, uh, anything having to do with the brain, I just think is very cool. But Maggie is having a crisis that I can totally relate to. Now, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a researcher. I haven't written a New York Times bestselling book. But there, uh, there are so many things about Maggie that I'm like, oh my gosh, that's kind of how I feel. Oh, I understand that. I, I sort of feel that way. Or I'm afraid I might feel this way. Or um, I totally get that whole, if I spend any more of my time looking for happiness in this gelato, I won't be able to get into my jeans. And then what am I going to do? I can't just walk around in sweatpants every day. And that's the same sort of thing Maggie's thinking. So for a thousand reasons, I was so glad that I got to spend this day reading this book. But you know what made me even happier? I really, really, really hope that you feel the same way. And that's this, that you feel like you have renewed your purpose, your reason for writing, your reason for storytelling. You have a gift. You you have a a urge in you to tell people stories that entertain them. Um, that maybe entertain them by scaring them. Maybe entertain them by thrilling them. Maybe by making them go, oh, swoon, romance. That's so awesome. Maybe entertain them by making them laugh. I try to do that as much as I can. Or um, maybe your writing is nonfiction and you have something to say that is going to help someone. Well, remember when we were talking to Lisa Crone, storytelling is wired into us as human beings. This is something that is important. People need stories to be able to figure out how to get through life, to figure out what they want, how they're going to decide what they want. They need people to be storytellers. That's you and me. And so I really hope that you find as much encouragement and inspiration and motivation listening to this interview with Kristen as I had doing the interview. And seriously, check out this book. If you're at all interested in chiclet, this is one of the best chiclet books that I have read in several years. I totally enjoyed it. I, According to my Kindle, I'm only 82% through it. And the moment that I finish this recording, I have to go finish it. I need to know what happens to Maggie. So I'm going to go read. You listen to the interview and tell me if you find things that make you change how you feel about your writing and your career and getting yourself back on track if you've lost track or you just feel even more inspired even though you're already inspired. I want to know. This is a great interview. I hope you enjoy it anywhere near as much as I did. All right, here we go. 
Today's guest is author Kristen Billerbeck. With more than 30 novels and over 700,000 copies sold, Kristen has mastered the art of combining memorable characters through snappy dialogue to create fun and touching romances. Her newest novel, The Theory of Happily Ever After, is sure to resonate with her many fans as they come to realize that the path to finding bliss isn't exactly what one might expect. Welcome, Kristen. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad you're here. I've actually been uh, a reader fan of yours for, I'm one of those reader fans who, I've been one of your fans for quite a long time, probably well over a decade, but um, somehow have managed to move so often that I have a few of your books in my boxes that get moved around with me, but I move so often or often enough that I'll start one. Like, I think I've started Split Ends three times. The last time I started reading it in New Zealand, and now hopefully it's one of the boxes that's on the ship coming to Sweden soon. It travels better than I do. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I have to say, I just love your books. I mean, for one thing, um, Chicklet, it's, it, it's what I write because I love reading it, and I love reading good Chicklet, and I just love the way that you do it. Tell us a little bit about how you got started. With, and, and also, I know that there's a point at which um, Chicklet was the popular word, and then there was this kind of, oh, stop saying that word because publishers aren't buying Chicklet anymore. Call it romantic comedy. So whatever it is that you're calling it, tell us a little bit about how you got involved in it. Okay, well, first off, I refuse to back away from the Chiclet title because Chiclet readers know what Chiclet is and why it's different, and it is different from romantic comedy. So I refuse to give up on that title just because publishers published too much junk and called it Chiclet, and then the genre died. So yeah. I refuse to give up the Chiclet title. So there you have it. Awesome. Um, <laughs> the way I got started was I'm a big Bridget Jones fan. I loved Bridget Jones, and I know that's, you know, can be unpopular among some people to say, but I had, when I decided to try my own hand at it, I wrote a chapter of a Christian chiclet, and um, I sent it to my girlfriend, and she said, Kristen, this is your voice. You have to do this. You have to stop writing romance and write this, and so I, you know, I was really shy about doing anything about it. And so the friend was Colleen Coble, who is a best-selling author. And we were on a writer's loop with other best-selling authors, people that I'd really admired. And she sent the first chapter to everyone without my knowledge. Oh. I sat there staring at all these people that were going to see this. And it was just mortifying. And, um, but it turned out I got so much positive feedback that I decided to write two more chapters and send it in to my publisher. And my publisher just didn't know what to do with it at the time. They were a very conservative Christian house. And um, so that was not going to fly there, most likely. So I found a New York agent who started pitching it. And he was an older Jewish man. And he called me and he was cracking up and he said if this can make me laugh this can make anybody laugh he said so we're gonna get this sold so out he went and he started selling it and that book was the first chapter was almost untouched and it became what a girl wants which is my best selling wow so that's how i got started and then i found a publisher thomas nelson which is now harper collins christian and they really believed in me. I had an editor, Amy McConnell, who believed in me. 
and we just started working together on the next ideas and the next ideas because I, that book contract was only for two books mm -hmm. originally. So we just started doing different ideas for the next one and the next one. Wow. That's wonderful. Now, so you already had a publisher, so you've been publishing something different from that before what a girl wants. Is that right? My understanding correctly? Correct. I was publishing sweet romances and I'm a little saltier than the sweet romances. So it was not really my voice. It was kind of like writing with gloves on. And so once I was able to write in first person and to write humor and be a little snarky and who I am as a person, it, writing became so much easier. And oh, you know, yeah. I published probably, I wanna say 15 books, 10 to 15 books and novellas that aren't my voice. And what's interesting is I got the rights back for one of them and I put it up on Amazon for, I think 99 cents. I don't even remember how much, but I got so much ugly hate mail because people bought it expecting it to be my voice. And it was just this nice, sweet little story that I took it down. <laughs> oh, wow. I got so much hate from it, but yeah. So it's a very wow. different, a very different style for me. And um, the nice thing is when What a Girl Wants came out, I really offended everyone who I was going to offend in the market. So they never bought me again. So I got a lot of hate on that, on What a Girl Wants. I got called a lot of names. And uh -huh. then after that, people just, those people went away. So that part was nice. Yeah. I offended everybody I was going to offend and I could move on. <laughs> Oh man, that it's, um, you know, I, I would say that that's so sad. It is. And yet I know that it's just, it's just reading, writing life. It's just the way it is. Well, and whenever you put truths down, you know, people take it with their background. So, yeah. you know, you don't know what kind of baggage somebody comes to a book with. And one mm -hmm. of the, the letters that I got was, um, that I was anti-adoption because one of my characters had just lost a baby and she went into an adoption situation right away. And my character, Ashley was saying, are you sure you want to do this? You're not just panicking. And, and so I got all this hate mail that I was anti-adoption and I, what, you know, that was just crazy to me, but I understood if you're coming from that background, it would sound offensive. Yeah. So, you know, you have to know that, not everyone comes from the same background as you. And, you know, another thing was um, I'm, I live in a really Asian place. Like everyone here is Asian. And so, you know, all different types of Asian, we have Indian and Chinese and Japanese. And so I had my friend who's Asian read the book before I put it out. And, um, you know, she was laughing and she thought it was funny. And but, you know, other people who came to it didn't see it that way because, you know, there's an Asian character and she is worried about her brother marrying him. And, um, you know, I, I can see where it would come off as offensive, but really she thought the Asian wife was too good for her brother, not the other way around. <laughs> so anyway, but, but what I understood from doing that is that, you know, people who know you know your motives and they know that you love people and that's not you know where you're coming from but you have to be prepared for someone who's coming fresh to a book 
They're not going to know your background. They're not going to know what you're trying to say, and they're going to assume things. So as an author, you have to be prepared to back up what you put down on paper. And yeah. the truth is, no matter what you do, someone is going to find fault in it. That's so true. You know, I yeah. always say as a writer, when you're getting all those rejections, it's, you know, terrible to see them piling up. But the truth is, when you get published, your rejections just become more public and more ugly. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, might as well get it out of the way privately while you're <laughs> developing a thick skin. Yeah, that's a great way to look at it. Since I um, I came into Chicklet right as publishers had, and and editors had decided that it was dying. So um, similar experience to you. Had a great friend who had a great uh, agent and signed with an agent, and then um, then she started getting uh, a reply saying, "Yeah, we think Chicklet is dying, so we're not going to buy anymore." So when I self-published um, and started getting, you know, the one through five star reviews, I was like, all right, I have to think of a business way to look at this. And so the one way was, well, if people, if uh, buyers are like me, they're looking at all the reviews, trying to decide, okay, well, what does somebody hate? Well, that wouldn't bother me. So I'm not going to worry about that one star review or what does somebody love? And, oh, I would love that too. But um, it's funny because some of the, I, I think honestly, there might only be one or two one star reviews, but it was kind of the, how could you say that you're a Christian and write something like this? And I'm like, but I never called it Christian romance. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm a Christian who happens to use curse words. So my characters happen to use curse words. And uh, it's definitely not something I could ever sell, you know, to a Christian audience. But if somebody comes across it and they think it's going to be one way and it turns out to be something else, you know, then they get, uh, well, they, they let you know quickly that they're very disappointed in you. <laughs> yes, that is definitely true. That's, <laughs> and, you know, it's a, it can be very polarizing, too, when you put out what you consider Christian, and someone comes from a more conservative background, and they don't consider that Christian. So you kind of have to let that go, too, because there's a, just a different version. I mean, I live in the Silicon Valley. It's kind of a harsh place to live in, in terms of you know, how people treat each other. So, you know, I've developed a thick skin living here. And I, you know, I just have to get past those judgmental types, but I, that's probably my toughest. That's hard for me to be around judgmental people because yeah. I've been around so many different cultures and so many different religions. And there's just no room for that here, no matter what religion you are. <laughs> yeah. So, so that part, when someone is coming from a background of you're not, you know, you're not Christian because you don't believe like I do, you know, I just have trouble with that because that's not the gospel. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, on the other hand, my, my other bad reviews were like, I really like these superhero books, except for all that religious stuff. And I'm like, okay, I really didn't think there was that much in it, but do you have people reading your books who don't realize that, um, you're a Christian author writing for, not writing for a Christian audience, but your publisher is a Christian uh, publisher. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you have anybody who, who comes uh, fresh to you, doesn't know who you are, and they're like, well, I really like the book, but then there was that God stuff and somebody talking about the Bible, and I didn't understand why that had to be in there. Do you get any of that? I don't get as much of that because my uh, religious tones are so embedded into the story they're not really overt and that's because i live here and you know you can't really be overt 
with people. So that m my points in the book tend to be subtle. Yeah. So, um, you know, which, but I do get complaints that it's not religious enough and I bought a Christian book and where's the religion? Oh, so, yeah. Yeah, so these are, these are probably um, the same kind of challenge that just about any writer in any genre is going to get. Um, I, I thought this was a science fiction book. There's hardly any science in it. I thought this was a fantasy book, but there's no dragons in it or whatever. So Absolutely. It's, it's not special to this market at all. Yeah, yeah. Now, your newest book, I am excited to say that I am on my Kindle 82% through it, and I was like, Dang it, I actually have to stop reading so I can interview you and I'm going to go back and finish the book. And I can't tell you while we're recording where I'm at because I don't want to give anything away. But um, The Theory of Happily Ever After, I have to say, is awesome. I mean, I love Chiclet. I like your books a lot. I haven't read enough of them to know that I love your books. But after reading this book, I'm like, I love your books. I need more of your books. So tell us a little bit about how you got onto this idea. Uh, before we were started the recording, I told you that I'm a total neuroscience geek as well as being a chiclet nut. And, um, and your main character is a researcher and basically a neuroscientist, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I always think that when you're writing a story, all of these things in the world just kind of come together and create a story in your head. And so at the time I wrote, I hadn't written a book for four years. So I have this space of time where there's no books by Kristen Millerbeck. And my sons were getting off. Two were going to college. One became a U.S. Marine and they were leaving and I just had a daughter at home. And my daughter gets so mad when I say this because I was mourning this empty nest and she will be the first to say, you don't have an empty nest, I'm right here. <laughs> yeah. It was so hard for me when the boys went away because the house was so quiet and I just didn't know what to do with myself. And um, so I was kind of sitting on the couch and I was kind of watching a lot of Hallmark movies, which, you know, is not <laughs> like me but um but I thought I need to get out of this rut and I need to do something different and at the time I had met well I was reading neuroscience books I do that for fun I read a lot of nonfiction, and I read neuroscience and brain books so um I was reading one and this particular book it seemed like the author had put a lot of herself in the in the book and the research and I thought that was kind of funny because as a reader, I was like, this skews your, you know, your data, because I don't know what's your opinion and what is the data. Right. And I thought there was this self-awareness missing from the author. And I loved that as a reader, because I was like, this girl's a little messed up and she's trying to do neuroscience. And I love that character because, you know, she's, She's trying to be scientific and data-driven, but she's also, you know, got some baggage that she's trying to deal with that keeps coming out in her book. And I don't <laughs> think most readers would have seen that, but because I'm a writer, you know, it, I just saw that character coming out that she probably didn't want to announce to the world, <laughs> this yeah. insecurity. So I got that idea then, of all things, I went to a funeral and I met a neuroscience to neuroscientist who works on happiness and wow. she was the driest person and I thought <laughs> okay see everything's coming together this is a character and I'm going to 
put her down on paper. So, you know, that's kind of how stories come to me. It's not just one thing. It's, it's these, you know, little signs that, okay, this is the next part of her and this is the next part of her. So that's how the theory of happily ever after came to be. Oh, wow. That is so cool. And it's just um, it's hard for me to not say too much about why I think it's so cool because I totally see this coming all the way through all these bits of the book. As so. you were saying earlier, I love an unreliable narrator because I tend to be black and white, or at least I was, you know, going through life. I had this very, very black and white view of life and life is not black and white. It's, it's gray. And yeah. I remember the first time that someone told me I was wrong about something and it was proven to me how wrong I was about something and the <laughs> light bulb going on that, wow, I really don't know everything. <laughs> and so I just love to have a character kind of go through that and have her world shaken up a little. Yeah. It's really fun because um, now I, I'm sure that I would not enjoy having an unreliable narrator as, um, as the main character of every book I read. But it's been so long since I've read a book with an unreliable narrator that I remember. Um, so I'm laying in this really kind of comfortable beanbag-like sort of chair in this, this apartment that we're in temporarily. And uh, I got my feet up on my exercise ball. And I noticed that my toes are tapping. Like, there's no music playing. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, look how happy I am reading about this woman who, who thinks this guy is being mean. And I'm thinking, he's not being mean. That, that, that's not what he meant. And, I'm th and then I'm like, oh, my gosh, like as a writer, I like have this little moment of, oh, that's so great. This is an unreliable narrator, which made me like really uh, pay even more attention and enjoy the story more because I was always like, do I agree with her version of events or do I think she's wrong all the time? I'm thinking this. Yeah, well, that's good to hear that you, you were thinking about that because, you know, we are set when we go into a book to believe what the narrator is telling us. But I love to have signs, outward signs, that maybe everything is not exactly as she sees it. And, you know, that's kind of the friends in the background are important to me because they see her in a better place. And I think that part is very true of myself. My friends see me as a better person than I think I am. <laughs> and, you know, I, you have to have those people who build you up when you're on the floor. And yeah. And I think, you know, creating community in a book is so important to a reader. You know, they want to see that the, the author, you know, is, has put some time into the side characters and it's not just, they're not just there randomly. They're not, you know, one of my biggest pet peeves in books is when um, the dialogue is, I want to say this and then I want my character to say this so it's, you know, so you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I like to have dialogue that, you know, the character's saying one thing and the friends are saying another, and you have to figure out who's telling the truth because, you know, I think that's more how relationship, real relationships are. People don't just say, you know, when I say the sky is blue, your friends don't say, that's right, it is blue. And I think some dialogue really can sound like that, very stilted and, you know, just say what I want you to say. And I want my characters, especially my side characters, to always say something unexpected so the reader is surprised. Yeah, 
And you do a great job of making them really interesting. Show us more about what we can't see because it's a first person book. Um, but without letting them get so interesting that now um, we're more interested in the, this, because this is a problem that I have sometimes. And it's, it's actually the reason why I did not like the movie Return to Me with David Duchovny and Minnie Driver when I saw it in the movie theater, because I had an expectation going in. But then honestly, the side characters are so much more interesting because they're just larger than life. And David and Minnie's characters, I felt, were um, really interesting, but life-size. Um, and so I, I, it's something that I noticed because I have a problem with it, um, having side characters that are really interesting without being too interesting. And I thought that you did a great job of, of making me really wonder about everybody, but care the most about Maggie and what she was doing. And what I try to do is if I ever write their stories, the friends' stories, then you know they would become more interesting hopefully because you'd start to get their backstory and the reason that they act the way that they act but i try to do that in my head as an author before i put a character down on paper i really try to know what their backstory is what their baggage is you know what motivates them because motive is everything to me i love you know people can act and this is especially true in the christian market you know when i was writing for the more you know, conservative house, Christians act a certain way. They don't do this and they don't do that. And, and, you know, there's a certain amount of truth to that. But one of the things I've learned is being a Christian my whole life is Christians are like other people in that if the motive is strong enough, they can do anything, you know? Right. And so, you know, getting a character to act a certain way is just a matter of putting them in a situation and seeing what they're made of. And yeah. so I try to do that with my characters and know before I put them on paper where their, you know, Achilles heel lies. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Um, I'm actually going to come back around to, to some things that I was talking about with Lisa Crone. She wrote uh, Wired for Story and um, Story Genius. Are you familiar with those? I'm not. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, that's all right. Um, there's like a thousand, probably 10,000 writing books out there. So there's no way we could possibly know about all of them. But, um, but before, I, before I comment on that, that was uh, very interesting. But um, in the beginning of each chapter of the book, you have quotes from Maggie, main character. She's a neuroscientist researcher who wrote a best-selling book, that makes um, neuroscience uh, on happiness, the science of happiness, more accessible to, I love what she calls neurotypicals, so the normal people. <laughs> and I'm thinking, neurotypical, that is exactly what you would expect someone who went to Mensa to call just a regular Joe. <laughs> so um, I know that you must have done uh, quite a bit. I mean, I feel like you did quite a bit of research on neuroscience and the science of happiness and the studies that are out there um, because your main character is that researcher and her book is about that. And the book is about, you know, she's having some challenges in her career. Um, so I'm just curious, like how much 
and how did you do your research? Because you brilliantly wove it in with everything else in a way that there was never a place where I felt like you were telling me, oh, well, first of all, I'm not sure you could tell me more neuroscience information than I would want to know. But uh, seriously, there was, there was not only no info dumps, but there was nothing unnecessary or uninteresting about how you had the main character um, speak and talk about her, her, uh, her, recent career as a best-selling author in this neuroscience community. So um, tell us a little bit about your research and how you decided to um, weave it into the book. And, you know, is this a first draft you're just really good at it thing? Or is it a go back and forth with an editor thing or um, other writing partners? So tell us a little bit about your process. Um, well, I hate an information dump. That really is one of my pet peeves as a reader. It's like, yeah, we we get it. You did some research. <laughs> so I don't like to read that. So I tend to be a little more aware of it. And hopefully I didn't overdo it. But on this, what I tried to do is um, I read a lot of neuroscience books and I read a lot of books on happiness and, you know, what creates happy people. And I tried to take the interesting stuff that people, because, you know, there's so much data and a scientist who's writing can't help but throw it in which is why I'm trying to think of the author that I read who um, she takes those kind of things and she just puts, you know, what she would be interested in. There's, it might be a he now that I think about it, but um, what I tried to do was take everything that I had read and just put these little kernels of truth that I found interesting. You know, for example, one of the things I found interesting in my research was that um, studying happy people is helping researchers find answers for depressed people. So rather than studying depression, they're starting to study happy people and seeing how their, you know, um, brain works differently than someone who is in depression so that they can find a solution for people who are depressed. And I thought that is really fascinating. And so that's the kind of thing that I would put into, into my book so that you knew you know, she understood what was going on. And I thought it was an interesting thing coming from the hero because you know, depression is a huge problem for companies because it costs them so much money in employee out time and, and that kind of thing. So I thought coming from him, you know, he would have reason to want depression to be fixed because you know, he's, a, he's an investor. And to him, it's the bottom line. And the bottom line is depression costs money. So that's the kind of thing I try to weave in is things that are, you know, interesting tidbits that you can go out and research. And there's, there's lots of data about, you know, studying happy people so that depression will go away. And, you know, so I want to, I want to leave people with those kernels of truth, but I don't want to dump a bunch of data on them because I know they're not interested in that. Right, right, because they basically are here to be entertained and, and be part of a story, right? Right, and I, I make no qualms about, I'm a beach read, that's what I do. I write beach reads, and so if you, which is why sometimes when people say, you know, there's not enough religion, it's like, didn't the cartoon cover give that away? Like, if you're looking <laughs> yeah. for theology, you probably want to avoid the cartoon covers. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> which is such a chiclet. I mean, I love that you still have the cartoon covers because it really does show you, oh, I know what this book is going to be like in tone and, and feel. Yes, I, was, um, I did a book signing this weekend and I was sitting next to two paranormal authors and they both had these 
you know, dark covers with, you know, vampire type things on them. And I'm sitting there with my little bright, sunny, <laughs> cheery thing. And it just, it made me laugh because I thought this reminds me of, you know, my cheerleading days where there's that dark popular girl and I'm like, hey, everybody want to be happy? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I thought that was interesting just to put me between two paranormal authors and they were lovely by the way <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh that's awesome yeah I noticed on your website um you have faithful froth filled fiction as kind of your your tagline up there and I was thinking a that's really awesome and b it's frothy but it also really has a an interesting foundation I mean there's there's definitely um I don't know why this analogy just came to my head. It's definitely more of a Reese's pe peanut butter cup than like a, a Kit Kat or something. I mean, it's not just light in the air. There's, there's some substance in it, which I really like. So um, I, I try to get that in there. I try to get the truth in there. But, you know, again, it's, it's my truth. And as an author, that's what I'm going to put in. And you don't have to agree with it as a reader. But, you know, I'm putting it out there. So, yeah. Well, and that's one of the things that, um, you know, for a, a neuroscience geek like yourself, um, on your, you know, 5,000 books to read still before you die, <laughs> you might, you might want to look into uh, one of Lisa Crohn's books. Um, so she has been writing, she's written two books now that are for writers and kind of linking neuroscience to storytelling and, you know, the, the genes and synapses combinations and stuff that are making us um, always be looking for a story. And she starts out, um, I think it's the first book, Wired for Stories. She starts out by saying, the people who have really learned to tell a good story are politicians, uh, marketers, and uh, television evangelists, <laughs> because they're the people that we're listening to and we are believing or wanting to believe or trying to decide if we believe the story that they're presenting to us in the way that they're telling their story. So that I think it's really, really interesting. What's that? That sounds like a really great book. I would enjoy uh, that. I think that you would. And, and she says uh, in the interview that um, Wired for Story has more of more neuroscience in it. And Story Genius is a little bit more of a how to use it. Like there's a little bit of both in both books, but Wired for Story has more of the neuroscience elements. So when she and I were talking, we were talking about how you know, the first storytellers, they were like, hey, I came from this other, other village and somebody died because they ate this red berry. So if you guys have any of these red berries and the leaf looks kind of like this, like, don't eat it. You know, that's one of the examples that she said that she uh, uses in the book and in talks that she gives. And I was thinking about, yeah, my, my way that I would always say that is that, you know, the first storytellers was like, there's a tiger out there with really, really long, sharp teeth. And this is what he looks like. And this is where he hunts. So we need to stay out of there. And people would be like, oh my gosh, yes, tell us more. Because it's a story, but we're learning something from it. So for instance, when I'm reading a, um, a pirate novel, I, I don't know what it is. It's in my guilty pleasure. Uh, pirate, pirate books, I just like them. <laughs> So long as the pirate's a good guy, of course. I mean, if he's going to be the hero, he needs to be a good guy. Uh, and one of the things about pirate books is, is that I will never, I, okay, so we, we have had some pirate, 
piracy now in the 21st century, but um, pretty much I'm never going to run into a pirate. Um, certainly no good pirates, never going to run into a good pirate. Um, there's just nothing about that book that's going to give me anything practical to use, except that when people are telling me the truth or lying or making up a story as a cover or whatever, I might need to know how people act and what sorts of things that they say if I'm in a meeting at work and I see I you know, that person looks like they're about ready to, you know, blindside everybody with something that's a total half truth. And, and it's going to make me look bad. And I think this is how I'm going to react. Like we can pull these things out of the stories that we read. And the thing that I was thinking when I'm reading your book, oh my gosh, I was loving it. Um, <laughs> is that I happen to be in the exact same position as Maggie. Um, I've had a lot of changes in my life. I've been trying to figure out like what happened to my joy and my peace and maybe I'm not even doing the right thing anymore. Maybe I should be doing something totally different now. Maybe it was only for a season or maybe I'm supposed to keep on going like I have no idea. And I'm reading about this woman who's like, I have no idea. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this, this character understands me. So as I'm reading about her and what her friends are saying and what the hero is saying and some of the other characters are saying, um, I was actually telling myself, you know, don't say this aloud in the interview, but I really do believe that um, you know, being authentic helps all of us to learn better and to communicate better. So I will say I had to stop a couple of times because I just started crying thinking about how that made me think of something else in my head. And then I would just be, you know, I'd stop, let myself cry, talk to God a little bit, try to figure it out, think it through a little bit. And I'm like, Okay, let's just go back to the story <laughs> and see what else Maggie does. And I loved it because I was finding, even though you don't put in like lots of religious references or God references or Bible references, like there's enough that you can tell you know, what the characters, um, what their point of view in the world is. Um, but it was making me think about things that that I know uh, and things that I've been seeing and you know like the beginning of James where it's saying count it all joy when you go through trials of various kinds and how people they stop there and they're thinking that guy's an idiot like who who would consider trials joyful but the end of the sentence is you know so count it all joy is at the beginning at the end of the sentence is because then you will be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And you're like, oh yeah, that's the part I'm supposed to feel joyful about. So the thing that, I, and I bring that up because I think it is so important as a writer, you can help people think through things that you don't even know anything about what they're going through in their life, but in a way that helps them regardless of whether they read that same book that you do, there's still this wisdom and truth that they can apply to their own lives and find a way out of their situation and find strength through your story about what they can actually change in their own life. I'm always amazed when I get letters like that. And I have gotten letters like that on this book. Um, that you know they're hearing things through that book that i didn't necessarily put in there it's just you know that's the way they're being spoken to and that's what they needed to hear and i love to hear that because it's so awesome to be a part of that you know because i i definitely didn't plan it all the way but one of the things about the character maggie is that she really is lost and i think when you have success in something um there's a book uh, if you haven't read it, it's it's sold like 20 million copies. It's about 20 years old. It's called Field of Fear and Do It Anyway. 
And it, it tells the story of this guy who went to dental school for two years and he decided two years in, I don't want to be a dentist. Like <laughs> I don't want to be a dentist. And so he quits and he, um, you know, everyone goes, but you wasted all that school. And he goes, no, I learned after two years, I don't want to be a dentist for the rest of my life. And I could have wasted the rest of my life. And <laughs> I, I think that's such a profound thing when we, um, you know, when we have success in something, but it's not necessarily, we can feel something shifting and it's not necessarily where we're supposed to go. And you're probably feeling like that because, you know, you've put in essence, your career a little bit, you know, has unstabilized because your husband is yeah. in a different country. So you've had to reassess everything. And I think we all get to that point. And some of the worst things as a Christian is being told, oh, well, you know, while you're suffering, oh, this is all God, count it pure joy when, you know, life sucks. I don't really want to count it joy at this point. <laughs> That's right. And so, um, you know, I try to get that in where the character is really having a crisis of faith because life is not going the way that it should. And I don't care who you are in life. At some point, your life is not going to go the way you think it should. And you have to question your root. Yeah, definitely. And I honestly believe that <laughs> there, there was a long time when I felt like I was not using all the gifts that God gave me when, you know, I was a smart person. I went to an Ivy League university. Um, but my sister, like she is a occupational therapist and she owns a therapeutic riding farm. And so she has, I don't know, 15 or 17 horses or something like that and a couple hundred clients and she takes kids out of wheelchairs and puts them on top of horses as part of their physical therapy but also this emotional and spiritual and and mental therapy there's all these things going on and i'm thinking my sister helps kids walk and i write romances and then a um NICU nurse, what is that, neonatal intensive care unit, so babies who are in intensive care, um, said to me once at church, she said, the thing is, though, is that I do need you when one of my babies dies. I need to be someplace where life is better and things work out in the end. And I'm like, oh, I, I do have a purpose. And it was a big moment for me as a writer. And so I always really want to encourage people, no matter what you write, particularly if you have people in your life who tell you you're too smart to write something like that. And there are a lot of women writing chiclet and uh, romance, romantic comedy, romantic elements type books who are, you know, highly educated women. So there's something there that these women know that other people are not seeing. And I think part of it is, is that you have a massive amount of power to help other people get through hard times or, or just have that, like you said, that moment of I'm on vacation and I am at peace and have nothing on my mind right now except for this fun story. And, you know, to, to be without hope, to live without hope is just the worst place to be. And I have been there where I just, I don't know what's next and it's the worst feeling. And yeah. so just to be able to provide some light for somebody you know, I, I've heard from lots of people who were going through cancer when they read my books and they wow. could, you know, be in chemo and just read this stupid little story and have fun with it and escape. And, you know, that is, I realize now it is a gift, but it was very hard the last couple of years living in Silicon Valley where everybody went to an Ivy League school. And right. um, 
you know, I did not, I barely got through state, but that's okay. Um, (laughs) And so, you know, but to be around all of these brilliant people who all have a place to be and, you know, something to do to make the world, you know, that much more wired and you're sitting here going, I write romance, you know, it's, it, it can really feel awful at times, but you do have to see your purpose in what you write and being around um, all the different authors, you know, this weekend, the paranormal authors, there were gay authors there. There were um, just every type um, shape-shifting authors and, and realizing- This is the uh, RT book lovers? This is at the RT book lovers convention, yeah. And just to see how many people bring joy to, they have different audiences. And that's, you know, that's the thing, like sitting next to the two, you know, dark paranormal authors, they have their audience and they're providing a service to those people. But it's harder for me to see them myself, you know, because like I'm looking at my little cartoon cover and it's like, you know, everybody is coming up to the gal next to me saying, oh, that's the greatest cover. And I have, and I like my cover, I have to say, but I'm sitting next to my little cute cartoon cover and I'm thinking, you know, I'm, this might not be my market, but I definitely have a purpose in writing. And everyone should feel that way because everyone has a different story to tell that someone might need to hear. Yeah. When you get those, story, when you get those letters back where someone really gets the point of Maggie, it's worth it all. You know what I mean? Because I'll get a lot of people who don't read into the deeper side of Maggie and they just think she's spoiled and selfish and rude and they don't like her. And you know, that's fine. That's their prerogative. There are people who don't like me, you know, it's all a matter of taste. So, (laughs) (laughs) so, but when someone really gets the deeper elements of what I'm trying to say, it's so rewarding. But what I have to tell myself when I do get that, you know, it's just fluff and there's no purpose in it is that's not, that's not for her. Yeah. You know, she's not my reader. Yeah. 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 I, I think that, um, honestly, I really think that reading your book and also just listening to this interview, I'm convinced that there are going to be a lot of listeners who are going to have another shot of adrenaline in the arm to get them back into, you know, over whatever hump that their writing career is taken right now, whether they're still trying to finish the first book or figure out what in the heck they're second book should be, or do I even still want to finish this seven book series? And I mean, no matter what, if we can just realize that there are people that we're going to reach, that that will be the exact right thing at the exact right time. My sister went through chemo and, um, you know, we've all got friends who have done it. It's a, it's a horrible, horrible place to be for a few hours. Um, my mom was on uh, kidney dialysis and both of them read a lot or, um, you know, a lot of my friends also listen to audiobooks, which is, you know, the same thing. You're still getting the story and it's taking you out of where you are, which is a huge gift. So, um, I really hope that everybody, you know, feels even more motivation to go out there and finish putting out the stories that we've each been given different stories to tell. And like you said, there's a different audience for, for all of them. And, you know, one of the things I want to share is when I wrote, I wrote one book, um, it was a historical and I went to RWA, Romance Writers of America. And I met with my editor there and, um, she told me I needed to plot that if I was going to write the next book, I needed to plot and 
you know, so that I knew what was going to happen. And uh, to this day, I can't plot to save my life. I have no idea where my, my character is going to take me in a day. And so something that was really encouraging to me is I happened to walk by Susan Elizabeth Phillips was giving a talk and I had no idea who she was. And she had just run one that year. It was 1998. She had just won um, book of the year for uh, this nobody's baby, but mine, which is a fantastic book. If you have not read it, it's fantastic. And she, she got down and she said, she never lets anybody tape her when she's speaking because she never knows what she was going to say. And I'm like, this is my people. Like I need to be here. <laughs> so I sat down and listened and she said that she did not plot and she never knew where she was going to go in a day. And she was, she had the book of the year. And I realized, you know, we don't all tell a story the same way. And that's yeah. black and white thinking that doesn't work. You have to do what, what your writer head tells you to do. And so, you know, that's my encouragement to an author who's out there thinking, oh, I don't have this in my plot and I need to, you know, get a few more dead bodies, etc." <laughs> and that's not what they want to write. You know, um, Rachel Houck, who uh, I remember when she pitched this princess book, um, she, she just got so much rejection for pitching it because princesses were dead. Princesses were, you know, they're just, nobody believes that anymore and that kind of thing. And she yeah. had so much success with it. And now she's on the New York Times bestseller list with her latest books. And she had a Hallmark movie made of her princess story. And it's like, sometimes you really have to listen to that, to that writer instinct, no matter what everyone is telling you. And so I would say the same for us with regards to chiclet, that chiclet is dead. No, yeah. bad, bad chiclet is dead. It is going to be harder, but yeah. people who want to read chiclet are going to find it and they know it's different. That is such a great encouragement. I'm sure that people are out there just applauding you as they listen. I'm so glad that you are on the show and that you had so much encouragement to give to people. Um, one of the big things that I try to make the Right Now Workshop podcast to be about, and I, I actually have um, three episodes a week, and Sundays is always an encouraging words episode. But man, whenever I can find ways to to help people to feel encouraged during the uh, the interview or the teaching episodes, I'm always super happy because we really all people, but I know writers and, um, you know, you really just can't have too much encouragement. No, it's a, it's a brutal business and especially for sensitive people. And most authors are very sensitive people and you're putting your baby out there and, you know, right. allowing people to say your baby is ugly and right. you have to be, you have to remember, Hey, I'm brave enough to put the baby out there. And a lot of people aren't. That's so. awesome. Oh, I'm so glad you're on the show, Kristen. Tell Thank us a little bit about uh, where people can find you and your books. I'm sure you're going to have some people going, wait, I need to know more about her. So where can they go? So they can go to kristenbillerbeck.com, which is spelled K-R-I-S-T-I-N. And then Billerbeck is just like it sounds. It's just, um, and then they can also find me on Twitter. I am Kristen Beck on Twitter. And I have a Facebook page as well under my name. So I'm out there. Excellent. Now your books are available at pretty much all outlets, right? True. You can get them at Barnes and Noble, Amazon, any, any major retailer. Excellent. And then this newest one, The Theory of Happily Ever After, just came out May 1st. So it's brand new. You can tell all of your friends about it because you'll be the first one reading it, maybe. <laughs> That's right. 
Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show. I can't wait to uh, talk to you more about neuroscience or chiclet or something the next time you've got another book out. Okay. Thank you so much, Kitty.